Good morning, Mike and Frank. The mic is Mike Wheeler. The person who just spoke is Kim Leary. We're delighted to have you back for another episode of One Step Ahead. And the Frank is somebody we'll be talking to soon, Frank Barrett from the Naval Postgraduate School about uh, adaptive leadership and negotiation. But first, I'm just interested, Kim, Candace and I got back from Maine last week. You were there the prior week. Where did you and Richard go? We were in Southwest Harbor and spent a lovely week bicycling around Acadia, hiking, and also enjoying popovers at Jordan Pond House. Yes, they're legendary. Um, the uh, I remember going there once, and the season was over, and so we had to wait for another year to, uh, to enjoy them. Candace and I were on uh, a friend's boat, and so we were actually on the water. Didn't step foot on... Mount Desert, but I know the water's there pretty well. We had, a, we had a great old time. Yes, and the popovers were a reward for a long day of hiking and biking. Good for you. Well, we were sedentary, which was fine with me, at least at this, at this time. But it is great to see across the table here our friend Frank Barrett. Frank and I go way back. You met him somewhat more recently, but some time ago. Uh, Frank, as I said earlier, teaches at the Naval Postgraduate School, and you can, you know, correct or embellish any of this, Frank, has his doctorate in organizational behavior and is interested in that. I'm also looking at, you can't see it because this is a podcast, a book that he wrote a few years ago called Yes to the Mess. And it draws on his experience um, as a jazz musician, a pianist, and we'll talk more about that. But I'm just curious, let's dig into this as we think about the jazz of negotiation. What is it, Frank, that we negotiators and those of us who teach negotiation can learn from you people who actually have some musical talent, which I do not? So maybe, Frank, we might even have you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be a musician in front of an audience. We all listen, but you play. Well, it's when it works, it's uh, great. It's amazing. But for jazz, you never know when it's going to work. That's how it's similar to negotiation. It's facing the unknown and discovering the, you know, inventing the world and discovering it simultaneously. That's the exhilaration. It's also the terror of improvisation. Tell us about one moment when you were terrified in front of an audience when you were playing. Oh, boy. Only one? <laughs> well, there's a famous, um, famous, it was recorded. I was playing with the Tommy Dorsey Band in Houston. It was, a, I think it was called the Houston Omni. I don't even know if it still exists. It was a, where the team played basketball. And there were the Count Basie band was there. We were there. I think there was another big band there. I can't remember now because it was back in 1980. A battle of the bands? It was kind of like a battle of the bands. <laughs> there's a part where there's a quartet playing. There's a clarinet, Kenny Popowski, who is a very well-known clarinetist now. Um, and then the rhythm section, the three of us. And there's a part where we drop out and the clarinet plays alone. And by the way, there's this big screen up above, so they would zero. They would, when you would, you look up and you could see your face, you know, like the size of the Empire State Building, looking down at you, or see the other musicians. So um, we were on video. It came to this part where Kenny was supposed to play alone, and somehow the signals got crossed, and the only instrument that was playing was the piano. That's that would you. Be you. That would be me. And all I remember is Ken said, "Take it." 
And I went, oh, man, this is, I can't swear on this, can I? I can't say what I really thought. <laughs> I think you've told us already. Yeah, yes. so I had to go, you know, I did two verses and a chorus. Did I, what did I, no, two, two verses and a bridge, and then came back. So it, it was substantial. And something took over because I even heard someone in the audience shout, yeah. And um, in got, got applause and it was, I never would have chosen to do that. When it was done, I was sweating bullets. So sometimes in negotiation, we talk about the idea of a critical moment in negotiation. That sure sounds like a critical moment on the stage. for me. <laughs> yeah. Can, can you unpack that a bit more for us, Frank? You yeah. know, you hear, take it, and then... So... I knew what key it was in. I knew the chord changes, but uh, and I've heard, listened to this back on tape. I've listened. I I don't know if I could find it now, but uh, I, years later I listened back to it and I played things I'd never played before. Like I I almost wouldn't have known that was me because you're just standing there with your bare face hanging out, and I must have just gotten into it and fully engaged and tuned out everything. Tune out everything. I mean that's part of the critical moment for this and just be. Inc- extraordinarily present you know it's like a radical presence for what's emerging what was interesting about this particular incident was I noticed that I um I played a real strong left-hand bass because the bass player wasn't playing so the bass player drops out the drummer drops out I have to plan out the melody but if if I don't play the bass there ain't no bass so I was I listened to it back and thought, wow, how did I do that with that simultaneously for that long? So, yeah, you kind of get lost. Frank has kindly come to my MBA classes a number of years. He always plays on a piano. A, you know, the keyboard is not enough. First-rate piano. Yeah. I, I, uh, my and standards. We, we, yeah, I understand that, and you, you've earned it. From now on, it's going to be a grand. So one of the things we do in the class and this is a negotiation class for business school students, is Frank plays probably eight different chords. Is that the right number? Mm-hmm. And, and then he asks people to pick one. So the students are picking the music, not mm-hmm. you. And you have to, in real time, concoct a song. Right. Here's my memory of seeing you do this a number of times. You're always nervous. That's yeah, very nerve-wracking. It's it's this is my point though. It's fairly nerve wracking, but you've done it again and again and again, and still you're uncomfortable. And there's a moment where you just transcend, and yeah. and you can hear it. Even somebody with a limited ear, you just kind of get into gear, and, and you're and you're gone. I guess the question is, you could maybe prescribe here if there were a pill that would make you not nervous before playing jazz or doing a negotiation, would you be better or worse? Worse. So so this is some kind of penance you have to go through? <laughs> well, you, you know me well enough, so you see I really genuinely do get nervous. Yep. It's not, uh, I'm not pretending. But part of getting nervous is your, your antennae are up, you know, just paying attention. It, I, Somebody said this, it's really interesting. Jazz musicians, we terrify ourselves just to see if we can get out of it. Hmm. Hmm. But I remember one time, it was in your class, where I, I picked up four notes. Yeah, and wanna, it was a want to sing them to us? Yeah. <laughs> well, what were the notes? Bum, 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 bum. Yeah. Uh, when the saints went? go marching in. Yes. I could not get it out of my head. I couldn't get it out of my head no matter what I did. And 
I couldn't improvise anymore because the the melody wouldn't go away. You know, it's like when you ha- when you wear uh, wear a groove too thick. There's no getting out of it. There's no improvisation going to happen. So it was so embarrassing. That's, that's the challenge, isn't it? Yeah. That how do you get out of a groove? How do you stay terrified and get yourself out of it? But under the condition of being radically present, as you so beautifully described it, yeah. and then creative. Boy, I don't know. Oh, well, thanks Sorry. a lot. I'll thanks a lot. No, but I'll get back to you on that. No, I mean, well, see, it's interesting because um, the one thing I haven't said, there's, there are a couple things that make it easier. One is there's some non-negotiables. So there's going to be a beat, and the beat is a non-negotiable. So there's a built-in future, um, and it's going to come at a semi-predictable. It's a micro-moment that's going to come in a semi-predictable way. And you just you sort of fall into it. So if you 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 can't go back and fix what you did wrong, there's no problem solving. Problem solving is useless. You just say yes to the next micro moment, and um, and that makes it kind of exciting. And I think what happens to some jazz musicians is they become technically so good that they they over rely on their technique. That that's the critique of some of the great, I wouldn't say great, the, the young lions, so to speak, that generation of incredibly um, agile musicians who had incredible technique um, and would sort of blow you away with speed and agility. But they've probably lost the capacity to surprise themselves. So so let's, I mean, if, if I may, to relate this to negotiation. Okay. One of your principles is minimal structures. Yeah. And I think when you're talking about the beat, yeah. it's that. Right. And I think the analog in negotiation is you want to have a plan. That's the music you're looking at or, or the melody that you know, but you don't want the plan to have you. Right. Right. And so I'm interested to the degree to which you allow yourself, or maybe it's not a choice, to feel that tension. But if you're too smooth, if you're too prepared, you're doing the same thing again and again. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. I remember, and I, I'm drawing a blank on the name, but I'm hearing, talking about jazz and negotiation, someone else saying, in jazz, you want to be 80% in your comfort zone, 20% not. You know, you can't be 0%. There has to be something that you know what the white yeah. keys are and mm-hmm. what the black keys are and so mm-hmm. forth. You got that. But if you're too comfortable, you're making assumptions you shouldn't make, you're not aware of your surroundings and so forth, I think that is a core rule for negotiators. Yeah, and you do, you do prepare yourself to be spontaneous. That sounds like a contradiction, but it's true. You prepare yourself to be spontaneous. So uh, when jazz musicians practice, because we do actually practice, we'll take sort of a phrase or a lick and then try and play it in an awkward key. So... For piano, that's D flat or B, and nobody plays in those keys. But you know, if you're really pushing yourself and practicing, you're trying to see what would happen if I ended up with this phrase in this awkward key, and that's sort of preparation for spontaneity. Back to the, your point about minimal structure, the the key is the word minimal, so it's just enough structure that allows lots of embellishment, and it's a non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, I use that word while you're talking about negotiations. I just realized that was an ironic thing to say. Well, Wynton Marsalis, 
whom you've come to know. I spent last week with him, yeah. You've got a project going on now. Can you just tell us a little bit about it? It started off small and it keeps getting bigger. I'm writing a biography of Ellis Marcellus, the father of Winton and Branford. You know, about the Marcellus family, you know, I'm from New Orleans. And I, I my grandfather had a big band years and years ago. It, it uh, was called the Herb Leary Band, not exactly perhaps the most uh, innovative of names, <laughs> but it was quite well known in the area. And I, I think what's so interesting is thinking about the family, as you described, the biography of a family in a very particular place mm-hmm. where people had to do lots of negotiating around their social roles, around a changing U.S. history. All of those elements are in the background of New Orleans and no doubt in the background of this family. It'll be so interesting to see how that plays itself out in your understanding of the family. I think it's going to be a biography of the family as a unit because the family is so interesting. Um, You know, how could this family generate... Four great musicians. Two of them aren't well well known in the popular world. Jason, the drummer, and Delphio, the uh, trombonist. But they they created four. Something in that family was unusual that these four stellar musicians would show up. And arguably, Wynton Marcellus has saved jazz from anonymity. He's the most important jazz musician since Miles Davis. Well, I remember when there was the Ken Burns multi-episode series on jazz. He's, if you will, the spirit guide or master of ceremonies. And even before the credits came up, he talks about jazz as negotiation. Yeah, you know? that's right. And yeah. that you never know what the bass is gonna gonna do, and you've got to be quick on your feet in that regard. So when I heard that, obviously it played to my view of negotiation as something that requires agility. It was interesting to hear the musician, Wynton Marsalis, yeah. talk about the other side of that coin. And that drew me to think about this. You'd spoken about listening, um, Kim, in your prior life when you were doing one-on-one therapy with people. Um, it takes an acute, acute may not even be the right word, but, but you're listening all, all the time. I think Frank has the right word about radical presence. Oh, did I say that? Yeah, you did. I think that listening and radical presence, they're they're one and the same in in many ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the insights I got, I'll just, because you mentioned negotiation, what um, Winton still talks about that, but the word he uses now a lot is democracy. He keeps coming back to um, this is... He talks about it almost like a moral calling that the jazz is an image of what democracy should look like. I think in negotiation, you want to have a um, a bias towards action, yeah. um, and there are instances where you should wait. Conditions may change. You may learn more. All of of that. But if you don't have that bias for action, including being provocative, you yeah. talk about provocative competence in your yeah. book. Basically, somebody else is driving the bus, and they may not know how to put their hands on the wheel. So, so can you say a little bit about provocative competence? Yeah. Provocative competence. That's interesting. I, until you said it, I didn't realize that maybe Winton is enacting provocative competence at a global level. Um, provocative competence means it's a stretch. It's like um, 
you notice the edge of your own comfort level and provocative competence means someone, and you could do this to yourself, but usually it's an outsider, triggers you or forces you outside your comfort zone uh, with some kind of an incremental disruption that's just enough to shake you and that you have to pay attention in new ways and experiment with new behavior. So my classic example has always been Miles Davis. But there's lots and lots of examples. Duke Ellington's another one. But, um, you know, Miles would um, call off a standard tune on stage, and as he's counting off the tune, change the key. You know, for some musicians, for a bass player, I'm, I've, t- I've since now, I took up the bass. I play the bass now, by the way. For a bass player, that's no big deal. But for the piano player, that's a huge deal. Herbie Hancock, um, to, I can't quote him because he cussed. <laughs> First time Miles did that. And um, uh, he said, I had never had to pay so much attention in my life. He says, my ears were listening, my toes were listening, my elbows were listening. Whole body listening. Whole body listening. Like you got, you know, because it's not like there's somebody in back who's going to play while you get your act together. It's on you. And he said, I heard myself play things I never played before. Let me put this in a negotiation context, and I'd be interested, Kim, whether there are applications in a therapeutic relationship. But the program of negotiation, you know, over across the river at uh, Harvard Law School, gives a great negotiator award. And the first recipient was former Senator George Mitchell, who helped broker the Good Friday Accords in Northern Ireland. Well, those were signed, but there still was a lot of bloodshed. So... Mitchell made more trips to Belfast, and finally at one, and there's a picture of the room where on one side of the table you've got the Protestants and the others you've got the Catholics. And he said, uh, you people have gotten to know me pretty well, and you know how much I love opera. And I love hearing, for the umpteenth time, La Boheme, just waiting for that moment when Rodolfo comes in. Now, I've been coming to these meetings dozens and dozens of times, and you're still singing the same song. It's time to move on. Now, that's provocative, right? And I think he was careful to say it to both groups at the same time, so he didn't scold one group and assume assume that he was in the other's pocket. But there are times in negotiation where you've got to shake things up. We're not making progress, and we're talking about the wrong issues. We're talking about the wrong way. Let's go. So what do you do? I mean, I assume you've got to be very sensitive, but are there moments you've got to grab people by the lapels, or is that a (laughs) no-no? Well, it's neither grabbing people by the lapels nor just staying in a state of comfort and taking in the world as they know it and appreciate it. It's really what you were describing, Frank, about a a kind of willingness to let other people shake you up. You talk about how jazz musicians terrify themselves, but what I hear you describing is how they create a space to let their colleagues terrify them a little. And in a way, that's very much like what happens in the clinical consulting room, that the medium is words, not actions, but people are allowing themselves to be provocatively engaged with one another, which also means seeing the edge of their own competence and figuring out how they're going to respond to the stories of terror 
different kinds for different people that we carry around inside our heads and hearts. I'll just add this, that there needs to be a degree of safety for that to happen first, right? right? So that means not only a therapy relationship, even in friendships. I'll give one example of a very good friend of mine named Mike Wheeler once. We're sitting at dinner. Do you know what story I'm going to tell? I, I'm afraid I don't. Uh, here it comes. So as a consequence, mm-hmm. uh, you've got me oh, in good. a little bit oh, of good. terror here about what to... I'd, be, I'd gone through a broken relationship, and I was just in moping, in moping. And Mike said to me, Frank, at a certain point, I get tired of hearing this. Right? I thought, wow, I guess I'm repeating myself. Well, what makes it possible is he, he knows I'm not going to be so offended we're going to break our friendship. Right. It's those right. minimal... Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. But, but I just wonder what people are going to make of that comment. <laughs> don't, don't cross Mike. Don't tell him the same joke no, twice. Well, that's why it stood right. out so much is because right. it was so unusual. And those Do minimal... you remember that? I don't. Okay. I don't. I'm pretty sure it was you. Yeah, no, no I don't I'm think sure. it was. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think you're absolutely right about the minimal structures of people who are working together, whether they're friends, a patient and a therapist... Yeah. people across the negotiating table, professors in a class. Yeah. Those structures have something to do with it being safe enough yeah. to challenge and terrify people yeah. within a certain kind of bounds yeah. and for a purpose. Yeah, that's right, for a purpose. And it invites a new future, right? So it's, it's not just a dead-end stop. It's the invitation to a new kind of future. Here's, I think, the challenge in negotiation. There are some negotiations that we do with the same people on a regular basis, particularly within an organization and so forth, and some sort of norms get established, good ones or not, as the case may be. Um, But a lot of times in negotiation, you're negotiating how to negotiate, and there's no Mm. agreement about what key you're going to be playing in. And I think that's what makes it stressful in some regards, because you don't even have that to to fall back on. You know, are you playing the bass? Are you playing the harmonica? Are you playing football, right? right? So there's that uncertainty in it. And then the question is, and I'm just thinking in real time, what can you bring to the negotiation table when you're dealing with a stranger about something you really don't have a lot of familiarity with that gives you some sort of platform? And, you know, in other episodes we can talk about what that may may be, I do think it is a general outlook. You know, it's a it's a frame of mind that has a mix of confidence that the sun will come up tomorrow, and also humility about whether the there'll be clouds on the horizon or or not. To stay within that that metaphor, even it would seem to me in a clinical situation, your tenth or twentieth session is very different from your first because you've built some kind of understanding. I think it's a, I'd call it a negotiation. Stuart Pizer wrote a book about about that as as a negotiation. Indeed, he did. And when we think about uh, the patient doctor relationship, whether it's in a therapy situation or between your internist and yourself, you are negotiating how you're going to talk about the issue at hand, how you're going to work together. And there are certain expectations of service, purpose. To get back to what you were saying earlier, Frank. And I think that purpose is a really important minimal structure or condition. In you know, the organizational change literature, 
addresses this with a different kind of language, but it probably be what language you'd relate to. They're talking when you're trying to do change, the importance of early wins, to have small incremental wins along the way, because now you have some version of a history you can draw on, even even if you're in a cantankerous, different, even if the, the winds are not the major change area, go for the margin so you have a little bit of a history to carry forward and it makes it easier to take bigger chunks. That's a topic we ought to get to in a future episode uh, sooner as opposed to, to later. As I'm thinking about our conversation here and you know my familiarity with your work, I guess paramount for me from what I've learned is is the deep listening part of it. And the application and negotiation is that capacity to be fully attentive and not have your mind racing about what do I say next? What if I make a mistake or something of that mm-hmm. sort? It takes a certain kind of, I don't know whether it's courage or just acceptance for that to happen. But if you don't have that, mm-hmm. if you're playing some other tape in your head, you aren't taking in what the other party is giving you, good or bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when you were talking earlier about being in front of a large audience in a sports arena and so forth, yeah. there's no place to go. You know, and, go. and you're in the middle of a negotiation, here you are. I mean, you have to have some willing, in spite of the tension, maybe energized by the tension, to be... Um, paying close heed, as I put it. You know, when we think about being in a concert hall, we're mainly thinking about the listening and Mm. taking in the performance through our ears. But you remind us, in this day and age, there's also the video screen and that we are watching and listening. So when we walk into a negotiation or Mm. are in the midst of a negotiation, we may expect that we're going to be conducting things in one register only to discover there's something else in parallel, away from the table or mm-hmm. even in our own side right. that we have to take into consideration. Right. So I think we've covered some ground, and we've also identified conversations that we want to have in the near future. Frank, thank you so much for thank joining you. us this time, and hope you come back for a series of, uh, of encores. So thank you, Frank Barrett. Thank you. Let's remind people about how they can chat with us and with their fellow listeners on our Negotiation 360 website. Well, it's not just the chat that they can have with us and other listeners, but there are other resources uh, on the site. Um, You can find my Negotiation 360 self-assessment and best practice app. There are links to online courses, and we're putting up articles that you and I have written together and maybe some others as well. So there's lots of stuff on agile negotiation and adaptive leadership. Much of it is free. We've even simplified the URL for podcast listeners. Here's how to find us. Just key in the letter N, as in negotiation, and the numbers 360.expert. That's N360.expert, and you'll find us.